to you this morning about a son and a father. And if you could turn to me, turn to me, turn with me to James chapter 2. We're going to look at the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. What an amazing story it is, a uh, story of God's grace. I believe that outside of Jesus, the greatest example in the Bible that we have of the grace of God moving in someone's life and changing someone is Abraham. Abraham did everything that he did before the law was given, before Moses came onto the scene. Everything that Abraham did, the way that he lived, was by the Spirit. It is an example to us of what it means to live by the Spirit of God and to walk with the Spirit of God. If you want to know what it means to walk by faith, I want to say to you the biggest example in the Bible outside the life of Jesus is Abraham. That's why he's called the father of our faith. And I want to speak to you about this amazing test that he goes through. How many of you have found that life sometimes is just one test after the other? (laughs) And I want to get better at learning how to handle the tests that God allows in my life. And so this is, I've called this Abraham's test, and I hope as I share that it will give you courage as you face the tests and trials that you have in your own life and as you journey with God. And so, as you know, we've been looking at James, the book of James, and um, we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish people, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his work, and faith was completed, a good word there is vindicated, by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and was counted to him, it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And last week I shared with you about becoming a friend of God, that yes, we are saved, and we're saved by grace. We contribute nothing to our salvation. It's a sovereign work of grace in our lives. It's God's kindness towards us. We are saved. At that moment, we are assured that we are His friend. There's an assurance that comes that can never be taken away. But then I try to encourage you that there's also an invitation from God that He wants to become our friends. And how we become friends with God is that we learn to walk by the Spirit and we obey Him. And as we obey Him, there's an intimacy that comes into our lives and a sweetness that comes into our lives as we simply journey with God. And that's what it means to be called God's friend. And that accolade over Abraham, of course he was saved. But there was an accolade later in his life, God said to him, this is my friend. And I want to encourage you again that God wants all of us to enjoy that kind of intimacy and friendship with Him. And that comes simply as we obey Him. And it is dependent on us to an extent. Not our salvation, but the kind of intimacy that we enjoy with God. I I use the example of of a marriage. I'm married to Helen, and uh, I've been married for 20 years. It doesn't mean that we have a good relationship. But we do, of course. I'm just just using the example. We are legally married But there's another thing that needs to happen in a marriage for it to be a sweet marriage, to be a joyful marriage, to be a happy marriage, to be a lovely marriage, an encouraging marriage. That comes as you journey together, as you learn to be friends, as you forgive each other over and over, and as you you, uh, see all the warts of the person and you are naked before each other. There's a joy that is indescribable that comes as you walk like that. It's got nothing to do with being legally, legally married. And that's what James is saying. 
There's a deeper intimacy that comes as we walk by the Spirit, that comes as we journey with God. And so, for some, this is a controversial section of the book because James is putting faith and works, and I've tried to have a look over the last couple of weeks where he talks about justification by faith, and then he talks about justification by works and what that means. And last week I said to you, the main point is that there's two separate events in Abraham's life that is being addressed in, this, in these couple of verses. The one is what Paul refers to in, Galatia, in Romans 5, um, 16, which says uh, we, are, we hold to this alone, that we are justified by faith. That is what happens in Genesis 5, 16, where Abraham believes God and he's saved at that moment. But what James is talking about here is an event 25 years later in, in Abraham's life where he's walked with God and he comes to such a point of obedience that he offers up his son Isaac on the altar. And after he's done that, God says, this man is my friend. I can see that he fears me. And I, so I try to show you how it's not referring to the same thing. There's this walk of obedience that produces this amazing accolade over our lives that we can become friends of God. So as we journey with God and as you have different challenges in your life, the challenges that you have are going to be different to the challenges that I have, but we all walk through life with having to handle different things. And I want to give you, I hope, five encouragements from the story of Abraham. The first thing that I want to say, the first big point, is that Abraham's walk of faith and walk of obedience is imperfect. It's imperfect. Now that should encourage you. I've tried to say this over and over again. God is perfect, but he's not a perfectionist. God is perfect in every way, but he's not a perfectionist. As I read Abraham's story, I'm always amazed, continually amazed, at the imperfection of his walk with God, and yet he is called the father of our faith. He's called the friend of God. And there were blemishes on his life. He made loads of mistakes, and it was a long and it was a winding road, as the Beatles say. But there came a point where, right at, uh, when he offers his, his, his um, son up on the altar, that his obedience, God says, your obedience, what your works of your life show that you have been vindicated, that you are, you are a man who loves me and fears me. And so I wanted to give you some highlights or some lowlights, if you like, of Abraham's journey, just to encourage you, because we don't have to walk perfectly. We just have to walk with God, all right? We are perfect in Christ, but our journey can have lots of detours, all right? God says to Abraham, I want you to leave this land, and I want you to head for a place called Canaan. We know that from Genesis 12. So does Abraham obey? Actually, no, he doesn't. He decides to go to Egypt because of a famine. So instead of going to Canaan, he goes to Egypt where there's a famine, and then as he arrives in Egypt, he lies to Pharaoh because Sarah, his wife, is a very beautiful woman. <laughs> so he knows the king is going to look at my wife, He's going to want my wife, and it's going to cause problems for me. So what he does, silly man, he lies to the Pharaoh, and he says, this is not my wife, this is my sister. And so Sarah is kind of taken into the household of the king, and you know what happens? The whole of Pharaoh's household is inflicted with disease. And Pharaoh says, what is going on here? And eventually Abraham confesses, oh, no, sorry, she's, she's not my sister, she's actually my wife. And he gets kicked out of Egypt and leaves in disgrace. So he wasn't immediately obedient, all right? He makes a mistake straight off. Secondly, God says, leave your family. He doesn't leave his family. If you read the story from Genesis 13 on, there's this guy called Lot. Remember Lot? He's Abraham's friend, a uh, family. 
And actually, he's not good family, if you read the story. He's a selfish man. When it comes to, to, the, to, to asking about the land, Lot chooses the best land for himself. And he leaves the leftovers to Abraham. <laughs> he t- takes the best for himself. Unfortunately, if you know the story, he actually chooses the land that is best. That's by Sodom and Gomorrah. And that causes a whole lot of problems for him, for his family, and for Abraham. And Abraham eventually has to rescue Lot at the end. And so... It takes time for Abraham actually to disentangle himself from this family and to actually just obey God. So he's not immediately obedient in that area either. And because Lot has taken the best land for himself, Abraham has this underlying fear in his life of, God, how's this going to work out? How are you going to provide for me? How many of you worry about your future and finances and how it's going to work out for you? Well, you have a common ancestor in Abraham, the father of faith. And Abraham has a lesson for us, and he has a lesson for you, and a lesson for me. And in chapter 15, after there's been this big battle, where Abraham has had to go back and rescue Lot and his family, who've been, uh, who've been abducted by these kings that were having a battle in the valley. Abraham does the noble thing. He goes back, and he rescues his um his, uh, his, his family, and he brings them out. And the king of Sodom says to Abraham, says, oh, well, you can, you can take whatever you want from, from the battle. You know, any of the spoils of the battle, they're yours. Take whatever you want. And it sounds like a good thing, but actually when you read the story, it's a bit of an insult to Abraham. And so Abraham realizes that, and he says, actually, I don't want even a bootstrap. I don't want anything that you're offering me. Yeah? And then he comes... And uh, the, it says there's this, this guy called Melchizedek. Melchizedek, and he's a king priest. He's, he's a picture of Jesus. And Melchizedek comes to Abraham and speaks this blessing over Abraham. And Abraham responds to Melchizedek. And what he does is he offers up one-tenth of all he has. Everything. His flocks, his herds, everything. He gives this gift to Melchizedek. And Abraham tithes before the law has even come. He's a man who's, who's, who's uh, living by the Spirit of God and out of the generosity of God in his life. And because he understands something of the grace of God in his life and the fact that he's saved, he just gives away a tenth to this guy, Melchizedek, who's a, a picture of Jesus. And um, Melchizedek speaks this blessing over him and he says, um, he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, And blessed be God most high who's delivered your enemies into your hand. And the connection is obvious. It's quite clear. There is a possession that we enjoy on earth as we obey him. He blesses Abraham and says, it's not only in heaven. You're going to possess something here on earth as you obey him. And then in chapter 15, there's this amazing thing that God says. After Abraham has offered up this tenth, after he said no to the temptation of finding God's provision for him the worldly way, just take the spoils of the battle, just trust in the, the earthly way, he refuses that. And then in Genesis 15, God says this amazing thing. He says over him, he says, I am your shield. I am your great reward. And when you look at the, the word reward, it's sakar, S-A-K-A-R. Do you know what that means? It means salary. I am your salary. I am your provision. I want to try and encourage you that God is your provision for your life. Now, 
Can I say this kindly? If you are constantly worried that you're going to lose your job, where's your confidence really? It's in your job. I want to say that to encourage you, many of you have been through difficult times, and I think as a church we've been through a difficult time financially in the last couple of years because of the recession. I want to encourage you, God is your provision. It's got nothing to do with the job that you have. Right? Because if God is your provision and you are convinced of that, then when you are without work, there can be a relaxedness in your life that God will still provide for you. Are you hearing what I'm saying? But if you are constantly stressed about work, ultimately, and I'm not pointing a finger at anyone, I'm saying this, I've had to journey in my own life, trusting God for my own family and my own provision. You hear what I'm saying? Abraham passed that test. He knew ultimately, he said no to the world in the way that the world wanted to reward him. And he said, God, actually, I am putting all my eggs in your basket. I am trusting you. And then God speaks this word of him, says, blessed are you and you will possess something here on earth and your, your, your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. And he has this amazing, amazing uh, declaration of his life that God says, I will be your salary. Don't worry about it. I will provide for you. Doesn't that encourage you? I hope so. I'm doing my best to encourage you. <laughs> and then, uh, so I'm talking about this imperfect walk that Abraham has. So here, he demonstrates this amazing, amazing trust in God. And then he takes another detour. Because, you know, we talked about this last week, that God promises him that through his seed, through his offspring, it's going to be a blessing to many uh, nations of the world. But he gives into impatience. So he's demonstrated such such trust of God on one hand, and then he demonstrates great impatience on the other. Because what does he go and do? His wife says to him, look, we're going to make this happen. <laughs> Isn't that sometimes what we, what we do? We, we want to try and make things happen. Better, something happens and nothing happens at all. And so she's not falling pregnant. So they say, okay, let's make something happen. And Sarah says, okay, yes, Hagar, sleep with her. So Abraham sleeps with his servant girl, Hagar, produces this child called Ishmael, which is the source of a huge amount of pain for everybody. He's impatient. And even when God comes again in Genesis 17 and promises him and says, listen, I'm just reminding you, I'm going to give you a son. He laughs. He doesn't believe. My point is simple, that as God was with Abraham, he is with us. God stayed with Abraham. He didn't drop him when, when he was disobedient, when there were blemishes on his life, when there were imperfections that he demonstrated, when there were weaknesses that he demonstrated. He didn't give up on Abraham. And I want to encourage you that God has not given up on you and he's not given up on me. Despite our weaknesses, our imperfections, and our tendency to do the wrong thing. God has not given up on us. And so there comes this point where James can say in James chapter 2, in spite of his meandering, in spite of his being obedient, disobedient, trusting God, not trusting God, he comes to this point in his life where James can say over him, this man believes me. This man is my friend because now his life demonstrates that he fears me. And in that sense he uses the word justification. And as I've been reflecting and praying this week on this portion, I think that the Bible says that not just about Abraham, but if you go and read Hebrews chapter 11, the great chapter of faith, God speaks that accolade over many, many people, men and women. 
who heard from him, who believed him, and had such conviction in their lives about the word that they received from God, that they acted on that word, and it demonstrated righteousness to everybody else, and it demonstrated their fear of God, and, and, and whole communities and nations were blessed because of their obedience. So, I want to read some of Hebrews chapter 11, and just let it speak to you as I read it. It says in verse 1, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's not just hoping, it's the assurance, it's the conviction, it's the down payment that it is going to happen. It's a deep trust that transforms and uh, activates in your life. That's what faith is. It's the conviction of things not seen. For by faith, the people of old received their commendation, not condemnation, commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was made out of things that are visible. By faith, yes, a whole lot of examples of people that were commended, vindicated, demonstrated the love of God by their obedience. By faith, Abel offered to God a sacrifice better than Cain's, which was commended to him as righteousness, and God accepted his gift. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. I was thinking about Enoch this week. You know what it says? It says that he didn't die. It says one day he was walking with God and he was taken up to heaven. Because of his relationship, his intimacy with God was on such a, at such a level that he was transported instantly into eternity. I wondered, I, said that, I was talking with Helen this week, I wondered what it must have been like for his family. Oh, Enoch, he's a little bit weird. He's just like, he's so into God. He's just like a little bit weird. He's just like everything, oh, it's all about Jesus. It's all, his whole life, it's all he talks about. And he's just constantly praying and he's constantly, he's just like a weird guy. And then suddenly one day he's not there. He's gone. Instantly transported to be with his father. (laughs) I wonder what his family said then. Anyway, it was just a thought. Why? He was taken up because he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, Hebrews reminded us, without faith it's impossible to please God. You want to please God? It's impossible to please Him without faith, without believing, without holding on. I love the the encouragements that Kermit's had. Don't get weary in doing good. Don't get weary in praying. Don't get weary in giving. Don't get weary in loving people that are unlovely. That, are, that uh, you know, Jesus says that you are righteous not just when you can love people who love you. He says this, he said, he, he, there's a kind of righteous, living righteousness that comes when you can truly bless your enemies. When people that have hurt you and hurt your children, you can truly say, God bless you, my friend. I wish the best for your life. That's a different kind of living righteousness. That comes from an intimacy with God when you can truly bless those that have hurt you. Jesus says, bless not only those that bless you, bless your enemies. Man, that's a different thing. (laughs) It's a completely different thing. By faith, Noah. Can you imagine Noah? I love that movie, actually. It's quite a, it's quite a, I think, a a good um, picture of it. That guy in, uh, what's it called? Sorry? You know the one with the... Heaven Almighty, that's it. And he kind of feels like 
he's got to do something, and he doesn't know why he's got to do it, and his, his beard starts growing, and everyone thinks he's crazy, and he starts building this boat in the middle of nowhere. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Noah? Man of faith, where's the water? Where's the clouds? Where's the rain? You're building this boat in the middle of nowhere. Our God's told me. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Noah? And yet he persisted. He said, no, no, I've heard God. And it says, he is con- he is, um, it condemned the world, and, and Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He heard God's word to him, the one thing that God was telling him to do, and he took uh, that word, and he activated on that word, and he was obedient despite anything else that he saw. He was obedient. I want to ask you this morning, my friends, what is the one thing that God's called you to do? That might make you feel ridiculous. That might make you feel like uh, no one's going to understand me if I do this thing. What is God's word to you? What is the one thing he's calling you to obey him right now? What is it? And then Abraham, verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed and he was called to go and he went to that place not knowing what he was going to receive as an inheritance and he went not knowing where he was going and he went and he lived in the land of promise in a foreign land. He lived in tents with Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise and he was looking forward to a city that has its foundations whose designer and builder is God. He was living for eternity. He was living for something that he couldn't see. He was living for an eternal city, a heavenly city. He was living for Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem. And by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she had considered him faithful who is able to promise. That's what she did. She considered him faithful, God who promised. And we go down to verse 13. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. It's not even saying it's going to work out like you hope it's going to work out. (laughs) It says some of them didn't receive the fullness of what they promised, but they were all commended for their faith that they walked by obedience, that they responded to what God said to them, and they obeyed wholeheartedly, and that released something into their lives. And it goes on in verse 17 and says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was the act of offering up his son. He said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named, etc., etc. And he finishes off the writer of the Hebrews in verse 32. What should I say? For time fails me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephunneh, David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better resurrection, a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging. They were chained. They were imprisoned. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute. There's one for the prosperity teachers. Destitute. (laughs) Having nothing. Afflicted, mistreated. And the world was not worthy of them. And they went about in desert mountains and in dens and in caves. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, but God was providing something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So there's this, this thing the Hebrew writer is, is, is saying, it's about, it's about God's kingdom, it's about, it's about the heavenly Jerusalem that we're all part of, and we're all made perfect and part of that thing. Doesn't that encourage you? Man, it so encourages me. So, 
What is, God word, what is God's word to you right now? What is what has God whispered to you to obey him in? Because it's quite clear from this chapter I've read that they were commended for what they obeyed him in. They were commended for what they did. That's why the psalmist can say in Psalm 25, may integrity and uprightness preserve me as I wait for you. There's a living righteousness. I'm not talking about imputed righteousness that is a free gift to us. We get it on credit. I'm talking about a living righteousness. That's a demonstration that we are walking by the Spirit, a real living righteousness in our lives. Psalm 26, verse 1, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in integrity. I have trusted in you without wavering. That's, that's a testimony of living righteousness. You hear what I'm saying? And James's point to these uh, Christians is that they had forgotten. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago, it wasn't just about being saved. It wasn't just about imputed righteousness, the free gift of them. They understood that. They understood the law of liberty. They understood the golden rule. Treat others as you want. They understood all of that. But they had forgotten that there was also a living relationship that God was calling them to that results in a life of obedience. And so that's why he's reminding them. First point. First principle is that Abraham had an imperfect walk. Second point. I believe God requires of us a growing testimony of works. A growing testimony of good works. I believe that God is calling His church, all of us, every, every believer in the UK, every believer all over the world, to a deeper obedience, a deeper friendship with Him that we might have that accolade over our lives, that we are called friends of God. And um, I believe God wants us to have a personal testimony of that, that vindicates that we are saved by grace. And here are these uh, points that I want to just try and highlight this morning out of Abraham's story. One, what God asks of us, the tests that we go through, never seem to make sense at the time. First principle. Abraham was asked to give God, back to God, what was the most precious thing in his life. The most, singularly, most precious thing. He had waited for a hundred years how many of you have waited for a long time for children? Well, here's this man who waited a hundred years for his son. And can you imagine the natural love that he must have had as a father towards his son? I know what I feel for my boys. Any of you who've had kids, you know what you feel for your kids. It must have been incredibly traumatic for him to hear God say, I want your son. Incredibly traumatic on a natural level. It was the, it was the thing that gave him the most pleasure, the, 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 the thing he'd been longing for for longest, and he'd waited for with patience for a hundred years, and God says, I want that. Doesn't make sense. How many times in our lives do we not find that sometimes God says, the thing you love most, I want that. <laughs> and they can be good things. They can be good things. They can be things that give us pleasure. And, and when they, and they bring us pleasure and joy, and when, when he requires them of us, then we get, it's trauma, traumatic. You say, God, you can't be saying that thing. That's my favorite thing. And he's saying, yeah, that thing. So, it could be your children. It could be your studies. It could be your job. It could be your love of food. It could be your love of good entertainment, sport. It could be your love of personal freedom. Don't tell me what to do. I'm, I'm independent. Don't come put your stuff on me. And God says, ah, that's what I want most of all, that thing in your life. The point is, why does he say that? Because he wants to be first above everything 
in our lives. He is a jealous God. He requires us more than Norwich City Football Club requires us. Jesus requires us. He requires our best. He requires everything of us. He wants to enjoy the highest praise, the highest accolades of our heart and our lips. And on a second level, a spiritual level, Isaac is the only tangible, physical link that Abraham has with the promise that God has given him. And the promise that God has given him is that he's going to be a blessing to many nations. So he promised him in Genesis 15, he's waited all these years, and Isaac is born, and so now God says, the son of the promise, I want you to offer up the son of the promise. Maybe you feel like in your life today, there's only one thing that you are gifted at. There's only one thing that you've been given by God, and if, he gives that, if, you, if you give that back to him, you're going to have nothing left. <laughs> Surely God doesn't want to take that one thing from me. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't. I read the story this week by a guy called David McCasland, who interviewed 24 people that were imprisoned during the Second World War. None of them had been treated, uh, uh, tortured, or um, suffered that kind of uh, mistreatment, but they all had suffered hunger, a loss of freedom, separation from their loved ones, a loss of privacy, and there was this great uncertainty ahead of them. They didn't know how things were going to work out. And then they all spoke with tears of what they had gone through and absolute joy when they were liberated into freedom. And he asked them, he said, well, how did your prison experience, how did it affect your life? All of them said this, that during those years where they were confined to prison, God taught them lessons during that time that prepared them for the rest of their lives and what he had called them to. All of them, without fail, said that. All of them also said, would you volunteer to go to prison? And they said, absolutely not. Never volunteer to go to prison. What's my point? Simple. We don't choose naturally difficult things to learn obedience. It's not, it's not natural to humans to want difficult things to learn lessons. But God often allows difficult things to teach us perfect obedience, that we might become friends of God. There's a beautiful encouragement in Psalm 31, verse 21. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. How many of you feel sometimes in your lives you're besieged? It's all pressing in on you. You don't know how you're going to get out. You can't see the end from the beginning. It's like you are claustrophobic and you just, oh, God, how's it going to work out? And, and what does the psalmist say? No, he says, God was wondrously with me while I was there in the besieged place. And I said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard my voice and my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. God always hears your cries. Whether you feel hemmed in, whether you feel besieged, God hears your cries. Secondly, so, doesn't make sense at the time. Secondly, faith is perfected by suffering. I'm aware, as I say that, it's not a popular message with some people. It's true. God asks Abraham to give him the most precious thing to him. It's the most painful thing that God could ask of him. I don't know why suffering is necessary for the perfection of faith in our lives, but I do know this, that the writer of the Hebrews says this in chapter 2, verse 10. It was fitting that he, that is God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that's you and I, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that is Jesus, 
perfect through suffering. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says. Can we just think about that verse for a moment? Jesus did not need to be saved. He did not need the imputed righteousness of God. He did not need to be sanctified. He was sanctified. He sanctified himself. He was perfect himself. He didn't need that. And the scripture says that God chose to allow him to suffer so that enduring all things as we are going to have to endure as human beings, he would be able to bring many sons to glory. That's why the scripture can says we have a Savior who knows everything that we feel, everything that we've been through. He knows. That should bring incredible comfort to you. How much more then, we, who are imperfect, who needs God's righteous, imputed righteousness, we need the grace of God, we need the gospel to transform us continually, we have a war in our lives with the flesh and the old man who still wants to kind of wrestle up and, you know, we have to kind of put him to death, that's what Paul says. How much more are we not going to necessarily have some hard times so that we can learn obedience? That's what Je- why Jesus said, Matthew seven fourteen. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And I don't know. I said it in my introduction. Trials, suffering, hard times will be different for you than it is for me. We are all individuals. But God wants to bring us to a level of obedience in our life where our faith is vindicated by how we live. And um, it might be natural suffering. It might be physical things. It might be financial disappointment. It might be loneliness. It might be unfulfilled dreams. It might be a spiritual suffering. It could be being God just not letting you speak when you feel like you've been mistreated and all you want to do is, is speak out. It might be something of forgiving someone who's done you wrong, being faithful in something that just doesn't seem to be producing any fruit and just hanging in there and like we're encouraged not getting weary and doing God good, just carrying on. Could be many things. Different for everyone. All I want to encourage you with this morning is that there's a great degree of consecration. There's that old-fashioned word. We used to sing a hymn in the... Um, in the Methodist church, uh, I'm consecrated, Lord, to thee. It's a wonderful uh, old word. There's a, there's a high level of perseverance that's required as we walk faithfully with God. I read this this week of John Wesley. He said this of, of the Methodists that follow him, he, followed him. He said, our people live well. And then he said, our people die well. Our people live well, but they also die well. There's a, they had this kind of philosophy, the Methodists of... Um, Walking and persevering, and they used this phrase, they would persevere until the fire fell. That's the kind of phrase they used. Until the fire comes, we're going to just carry on until the fire comes. Yeah? Until God does something, we're going to persevere. How long to see that more in the church? We give up too easily. Give up too easily on the promises of God in our lives. And uh, they also used to sing this. They used to sing the old Methodist, I was on the altar when the fire fell. I was on the altar when the fire fell. What does that mean? Well, it means simply the altar is a place where you don't have anything left to offer God. All the good stuff that you think you've got to offer God, you've come to the end of that. You've come to the end of resentment. You've come to the end where there's no pride left in your life. You're just kind of saying, God, there I am. I'm on the altar, and then the fire falls. And that's what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. Verse 1, and I want to encourage you with this verse. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Yeah? 
He's recognizing Jesus went through hard things. He says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. What does that mean? It means realize, take into your life that there are going to be some hard things in your life. It's not just going to be a bed of roses. Arm yourself with the same attitude that you're not surprised. And you say, God has left me. He doesn't love me anymore. Why am I going through this hard thing? No, no, no. Arm yourself with the same attitude that Jesus had. That's what, what, what he's saying. For whoever has suffered in the body has ceased from sin. And what does that mean? He explains what it means. So as to live for the rest of his time, the rest of his life, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Do you understand what he's saying? I don't want to be crude, but he's saying, when the stuff is kicked out of you, when all your rubbish is kicked out of you, you live differently. When all the stuff, the, you know what I'm saying? All the wrestling, all the, all the doubting, when all of that is kicked out of you by difficult things, all you have left in your life is to say, God, I trust you completely. And then suddenly it's a different feel. That's what Peter is saying. No longer living for human passions. No longer living for human things, living for the will of God. And that's the greatest thing in our lives. Okay, are you still with me? Okay, so those are the first two things. I've got five, plus three, the others are much shorter. The third principle is to trust the Holy Spirit without knowing all the details. <laughs> to trust the Holy Spirit as we're going through these trials without knowing all the details. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, the one that you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him up there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Fuck. How much detail is that? Oh, there's a mountain somewhere in Moria. Just go, start walking, and I'll show you the mountain. Not a whole lot of detail. Didn't give him all the detail. Often that's the problem with us as we walk as Christians, isn't it? We want all the details now. It's a natural human thing to want to know when you're going. If you, if you want to get somewhere, what do you do? You have a GPS or you have a map. And you want to know how to get there, and you want to know where to go. If you like Helen, you have a GPS and you have a map, just to check that the GPS is actually right on your map. <laughs> we all want to know where we are going. It's a natural human thing. We want the details. And you know what? If you want to be a man of faith, if you want to be a woman of faith, I want to say this kindly over your life. God is not going to give you all the details. Because if he gave you all the details, you wouldn't need faith. <laughs> That's, it's like a, what's it, a catch-22. It's like a conundrum. That's the deal. We say we want to be people of faith. Well, God says, okay, we're going to go on a journey together. And you know what? You're not going to get all the details up front. As you walk, I'll show you step by step. But you have to put one foot in front of the other, and I'll show you. And so we read in chapter 4 of 22, it says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw that place far off. So now it's like, how does he know that was the mountain? Well, I've used this phrase often before. He knew in his Noah. He, he just knew inside his heart, in his heart of hearts. He knew that was the place that God had spoken about. And I'm saying there comes an intimacy in our lives when the Holy Spirit says something that you so recognize it and you know it's him speaking. That's how Abraham knew that this was the place. He just knew in his Noah. He knew that was God speaking and it was that place. And he went on towards that place. And I want to encourage you that when you hear the voice of God like that, you obey quickly. And you say, yes, Lord. And you respond quickly, despite what people think, 
but the people think you're crazy, but your family thinks you're unreasonable, that you respond to what God is saying in your life. You don't get all the details. Point number four. It's always darkest before the dawn. Always the blackest before the dawn. For me, verse 7 is one of the most heart-rendering verses in the whole Bible. It's one of the most poignant verses in the Bible. Isaac, the son, says to his father, he says, Dad, and his father says, Yep, here I am, my boy. He says, I see the fire, see the wood. Where's the sacrifice? Can you imagine what happened in Abraham's heart at that moment? His boy, his, the love of his life that he'd been longing for for 100 years, goes up with him up the mountain confidently. Perhaps they were walking hand in hand. Absolute trust that this little boy has in his dad. And his dad, he says, Dad, I can see the fire. I can see the wood. Where's the, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, without knowing, he prophesies these amazing words. He says, God himself will provide the sacrifice. And you know the story. There in the thicket is a ram, and um, the ram is sacrificed. Lastly, being willing is not enough. When it comes to walking by faith, I don't say that in a, to accuse anybody, but being willing is not enough. To be a person that walks by faith, our willingness doesn't vindicate us. What we do vindicates us. You hear what I'm saying? It's all very well to have all the good will in the world, but until it is obedience, it's not vindication. You hear what I'm saying? And I'm, I trust you do hear what I'm saying. You see, J- James says that Abraham was justified by his works when he offered up his son. Not when he went down to Egypt. Not when, we, when he offered up tithes, when he gave all of his finances. Not then. No, no. He was, obedient, he was vindicated by his works only when he had done the thing that God had asked of him for his life. That's when he was vindicated by works. Okay? So I want to ask you again, lovingly, have you done what God, the last thing that God asked you to do? Have you done it? You might have all the goodwill in the world, and I think goodwill is wonderful, but have you done the thing that he asked you to do? The one thing. You see, it's only when he's actually doing the one thing, when he's lifted the knife, and you can just imagine he's looking into the face of his son, the knife is there, it's only in the moment as he's about to put the dagger into his heart that the angel appears and says, no, stop. In the moment. He was more than willing, he was actually doing it. And then the angel says, no, stop. God can see that you fear him. Man, it's incredible. Have you done the one thing that God has asked you to do? And you might say, well, why, why does it actually, you know, isn't it, you know, why are you just majoring on this thing of obedience and, you know, I'm willing, but the flesh is weak and all that kind of stuff. And I, I want to give you three little things, and I'm closing with this. He had to do it so that his own faith could be vindicated. That's why Abraham had to do it. Fulfilled, vindicated, whatever word you want to use. And like I've said, James is using this example to remind these early Christians about the testimony that they have to other people the influence that they have, their lives on others. And he's saying obedience is the one thing that shows what's happened on the inside is reality and it affects the way that you live. It is important, your obedience. That's what James is reminding of them. And I want to just encourage you that our lives can become a testimony of joyful obedience, happy obedience, not wrestling obedience. Yeah? 
We're always wrestling with God. And sometimes the, the pain is more in the wrestling, isn't it? <laughs> sometimes that's where the real pain is. When you're wrestling, 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 God, is this really what? And then actually when you do it, it's like the relief is there. Have you ever found that? Like sometimes we expend so much energy in the wrestling, arguing with God and saying, oh, it can't be so. Come on, surely it's not right. It can't be this thing, Lord. There's so many others that you can choose, but not this thing. And, so, and when we eventually come to that point, and yep, it's just like the relief floods our lives and we get on with it. Yeah? Jo- joyful obedience. Second, Abraham had to do it not just for, because it vindicated his own faith, but because what it did for God. It meant something to God. We know that in verse 12. The angel appears to Abraham and says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now that I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son. God wants to affirm over our lives our obedience. He wants to affirm our, integri- affirm our integrity. He wants to say over all of us, I know that you fear me. And what is James saying? Don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a doer. And it's, you get some blessing when you do. It's not that you try and get your salvation. That's settled. We're all saved, happily saved. We will all see each other in heaven one day. It's a brilliant thing. Beautiful. But, God, but James is saying, let's also give ourselves to joyful obedience. And lastly, why did, why did Abraham have to do that? Because God wanted to give Abraham his life back. You know, I grew up, I was a musician, uh, I slam a musician, but there was a wrestle in my life when I was, this call of God in my life for the ministry, because the one thing that I loved was music. Loved playing, great pleasure, loved to write songs. We recorded, I recorded four albums, we had a great time, it was just like, Beautiful. Helen and I traveled all over the place with our kids in vans, just thousands of miles. I remember one weekend we drove from Johannesburg to Cape Town and back in one weekend just to play one gig. That was a fun time. And then God says, that one thing, I want that. God, not that one thing. That's what I like, that one thing. You can't be serious. You can't be serious. That one thing. Yes, that one thing. And now I play more music than I've ever... I play music all the time. I didn't lose it. He gave it back. He just gave it back differently. You hear what I'm saying? God wants to give you your life back. He's not mean. He doesn't want to take the things that you enjoy. He wants it back, but he wants it back in a different way where it's not for you anymore. It's not my thing. It's not to to get wealthy. It's not to get famous. No, it's God. It's your thing. I want to give it to you. It's you. It's you. It's about you. Do you hear my point? Ah, Your art. God wants to use your art, man, Vicky. But he wants you to give it to him. He doesn't want to take it and say, well, I don't want you to draw anymore. No, he wants that thing that's going to bring others pleasure and grace and joy to other people's lives. But he wants it so that he can use it for the way that he wants to use it, not the way that you want to use it. Are you with me? No, I am very loud. The question is, I'll conclude with this, this accolade over Abraham's life. There's my friends. Look at his life. Look at his works. Question is, how many of us are God's friends? How many of us are God's friends? We have opportunities to pass the test that he, um, 
that he allows in our lives. Abraham did so many stupid and silly things. He had reached 100 years old. Maybe you think this morning that you've done so many silly and stupid things that time has run out for you. I want to encourage you, Abraham's best years were when he was 100 years old. How many of you in this room are 100 years old? None. There's hope for every one of us that our best years can still be ahead of us. Amen. Of course, God hasn't given up on you. He hasn't given up on me. The finest hours are still ahead if we give ourselves selflessly to living by this. Two little things. Have you been saved by faith? Have you been saved? That's the starting point. That's what pleases God most of all, is that we believe Him. It's credited to us as righteousness. We are saved. If you're not saved here this morning, if you don't know what that means, I want to pray with you. The Bible says all you have to do is believe in Jesus in your heart, confess with your mouth, and that moment you are saved. And you're instantly transported from darkness into light, and you never go back into the kingdom of darkness, ever. You still have some things that are happen and God sanctifies you by the power of His Holy Spirit, but you are, he, he sees you, there's a righteousness that comes and it's imputed to you and you are saved. And that brings peace and freedom and assurance. And then there's this invitation that we, we um, walk with God and learn obedience and that we become His friends. And so I want to ask you, if you've not been saved this morning, I want to pray for you in a short while. Those of you that have been saved, I want to ask you this, and I ask myself, how are Have your works vindicated your faith? Is there a testimony of growing obedience in your life? I don't say that to accuse or to put anything on anyone. I'm just saying that's what James says to us. There's a vindication. There's a a reality. There's a living righteousness. There's an imputed righteousness that is a gift to us. And then there's a living righteousness as we are transformed from one degree of glory to another, as we do not get weary in doing good, as we walk with Him, as we journey with Him, as we walk by the Spirit, And then God says, these are my friends. Look how they love me. It's not hard for them. 